Welcome to Trial Lawyer Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best lawyers in the country. Today, we're very lucky we have Jim Leach. Jim is a wonderful lawyer from South Dakota who really has walked the walk and talked the talk. He's fought for the rights of Native Americans for years, decades. He's fought for the rights of the downtrodden, the poor, the abused, and he really is an inspiration for all of us. He practices out of South Dakota, but his cases have national impacts and are really, really in, involve lessons for all of us and a lot of insight. So let's get started. I'm very happy to be talking with Jim Leach, who is such a wonderful guy that's been part of the foundation for Trial Lawyers College and truly a, a, a lawyer that represents what I think we all aspire to, who's fighting to make, make people's lives better every day and has devoted his career to doing this. Jim moved to South Dakota right after graduating from law school in 1975 to work as a volunteer lawyer for the Wounded Knee Defense Committee, a pro bono organization that defended Native Americans, uh, Native Americans that were charged with serious federal crimes after they occupied the village of Wounded Knee for 71 days in their search for a better life. Over the years, he's done many different types of cases in legal work, including environmental and treaty cases on behalf of Native Americans. And most recently, he's won several lawsuits on behalf of prisoners and has had three successive laws enacted by the state of South Dakota that restricted election rights to be held unconstitutional. It's really my pleasure to be talking with Jim Leach today. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Scott, and I, I hope I'm worthy of that very kind introduction. Yeah, well, you are. So, Jim, can you share with us a story of a case that had a profound impact on you. Yes, um, the one most recently that comes to mind is a is a case that um, successfully challenged the practice of uh, small police departments in South Dakota of forcibly catheterizing drug suspects when needed to try to get evidence of drug use. And can you share with us the story from your client's perspective? Can, right, you, reverse, I, can you reverse roles with your client? Well, yes. I had uh, six clients in the same case 
all bringing the same claims, each arising from a completely separate factual circumstance. But the one client who I think was actually the most important client in the case, because her treatment said the most to the judge about the reality of this, was a woman named Gina Alvarez. And I could... uh, I can take on the role of Gina and speak as Gina if that if if that would be helpful. Yes, please reverse roles with Gina. All right. Well, I uh, I live outside the small town of Winter, South Dakota, and it's hostile to everyone except well-off white people. I know that. Um, but I, uh, I, w- I was with my boyfriend and we were drinking and I was driving home and I, apparently I failed to dim my headlights as I, at night when I went past this uh, oncoming state trooper. So he turned around and pulled me over and arrested me for uh, DUI. But that's just the beginning of the story. That's that's not the end. What happened next? Well, I basically uh, started to freak out because I uh, I have a problem being in closed spaces, and he put me in the back of his patrol vehicle, and I just I hadn't been using any drugs except marijuana. And um, I just started to freak out. And what I'm going to tell you now is not a secret because it's been filed in, it was eventually filed in the court case in my deposition. But I have a history of um, really a lot of abuse, of every kind of abuse in my family of origin. And I I just... uh, and what happened and 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 how this played into what happened is that the this trooper thought that i was uh that i was under the influence of drugs and he uh he took me to a local hospital and uh as i i was i was freaking out i was yelling about my my having been abused and I was yelling at my father and my father wasn't even there. And as I did that, a nurse stripped off my uh, pants and my underpants and uh, a male patrol officer actually grabbed one of my legs and held it open and the nurse grabbed the other leg and another nurse, uh, stuck a catheter into my uh, into my urethra and up my urethra into my bladder and I just was freaking out. This is so hard because of my prior experiences in life and um, they drained they drained the urine out and um, Finally took the catheter out, and uh, they had their urine. 
Gina, if you could put that feeling in a sound, what you're feeling at this moment when you're being attacked. I, I'm, as Gina, I don't think I want to do that to your listeners. You must have been absolutely terrified. I was terrified I was out of my mind, basically. A lot of pain. Yeah, there there was pain, but it was just, uh, I mean, I was reliving things that happened to me long ago. A lot of trauma. Yep. You must have felt powerless. Beyond powerless. And I... Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I was, I was and am a working person. I had a small little restaurant that I was running and keeping open. And, um, I've worked my whole life. I just, you know, trying to get by and, um, to have police do this to me, it was, one of the most humiliating things that's ever occurred to me in my life. Gina, what else do we need to know? Um, I had some, some physical problems. I had a, had a urinary infection that I had to be treated for and this affected, um, this experience affected my, um, relations with my boyfriend a lot because I just couldn't, couldn't be close to anyone and couldn't be close in the same way that we had been before. And I had, you know, I had flashbacks about this and it was all, it was all, you know, there was nothing that was ever going to be done. I pled guilty to DUI. And um, then about a year later, out of the blue, I heard from this lawyer. Okay. And that's when the case started. Okay. Then, Gina, let me have you reverse back uh, with Jim. Okay, I'm back. Jim's back. How are you feeling, Jim? Okay. You know, kind of emotional. So now, Jim, we're going to hear your story that, although we've heard obviously part of it, how do you get involved in this case? Well, I think there's there's two stories two stories to that. There's the deep story and then there's the less deep story. And, and I think I can tell them both real shortly. The deep story is that, uh, um, I've always wanted to work for people who are social outcasts and what are sometimes called isolates in society. And, I think that's because I grew up 
extremely emotionally isolated and it took me a long time to overcome that. But the, the more direct story is that uh, I became aware of this practice that it was going on in South Dakota at all when a newspaper article appeared about um, a man this had happened to in central South Dakota. Um, I live in Rapid City, which is, you know, it's about 70,000 people, which is the second largest city in South Dakota. And uh, it had never happened here. But uh, in some small towns in South Dakota, it did happen. And I later learned it had been going on for at least 20 years. It had probably happened to hundreds of people. But that all that knowledge came later. At first, I just learned about this one man. And I read this newspaper article and I thought, my God, that's shocking. How can anything like that go on in the 21st century, let alone the 20th? You know, this is horrible. And I just felt I had to do something. And I said to my, you know, I said, I, I, I don't know where this is going, but I don't think I can respect myself unless I try to do something about this. So I, uh, I used an ethical rule that I don't think a lot of lawyers know about, which is model rule of professional conduct 7.3B, as in B as in Baker. And I, uh, it's a rule that's been adopted pretty much everywhere across the country. And it allows lawyers in cases that are not seeking monetary gain for the lawyer to make direct solicitation of a client by directly contacting the client. In other words, I think we all know that if someone had a, had a motor vehicle collision or something bad happened to them, as a lawyer, we're prohibited from direct in-person solicitation. But in a case where the lawyer is not seeking financial gain, Rule 7.3b allows it. And uh, I was, I always knew that if I did these cases, they'd be pro bono cases. The only way I'd ever get paid, not from the clients, but if I won the case and if I could surmount the other obstacles toward a fee award, I could get paid by the defendants. And in those circumstances, I just, uh, I contacted the person in the newspaper article and um, talked to him and, and uh, he definitely was interested in filing a lawsuit. And then I went from there and uh, uh, through investigation and then later through discovery I found my other five clients including Gina Alvarez and tell us about your journey in the case the uh, the short story the short version is that um I found out the ACLU had also been aware of the uh, person whose, whose description was in the newspaper, whose story was in the newspaper 
and they had not filed suit. So I, um, I wanted to tap into their expertise and, uh, I met with the ACLU lawyer and we got along really well and she was really happy to have me involved. And we agreed that I would be lead counsel and they'd be available for backup. So I was lead counsel all the way through, but I was always able to submit uh, my draft briefs or my, my ideas about the case to her and uh, another lawyer in her office. And they just gave me great feedback because people who have done civil rights law know it's very, very challenging and complex area and having their expertise was, was really helpful. So as the case proceeded, um, I had, I had uh, 10 different defendants. I had four defense lawyers. Fortunately, they were all my kind of defense lawyers, which means honest and easy to work with, no BS. And um, I took 31 depositions. They took, defense lawyers took six depositions, just of the six plaintiffs. And uh, we both moved for summary judgment. I moved for summary judgment on, on liability and they moved for summary judgment uh, on the whole case. And we filed, both sides filed Literally, literally hundreds of pages of briefs and exhibits. I think I counted once and I filed 249 pages of briefs on the summary judgment motions because I had to both make my case and uh, show why their arguments should not be adopted by the court. And uh, fortunately, the judge saw it my way. And the judge held that forcible catheterization of uh, drug suspects to obtain, to attempt to obtain evidence of drug use so that those suspects could be charged with crimes was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And as I read his decision, um, he talked, I mean, the, the one time that I read passion in his decision, the most passion was when he wrote about what had happened to Gina Alvarez. And so he, he got that. And I, I was glad I'd been able to tell her story in the case in a way that, um, even though it was all on paper in a way that, came through to the judge. So what was the impact of your case in South Dakota? Well, um, it had a, actually had an immediate impact. Um, I found out later that as soon as I filed the case, all the defense lawyers told their clients not to do this again until the case was resolved and only if it was resolved in, in their favor. And I think that reflects that these defense lawyers were smart enough to realize that 
they might lose this case and they didn't want to create any more liability for their clients on, you know, unless they could win this case. And so while they defended it all the way through, um, they knew this was, this was going to be a case they might not win. So just filing the case immediately stopped this, which made me feel fantastic. And then the case got quite a bit of uh, attention and publicity. And the net result of the judge's decision is that it ended forcible catheterization in South Dakota. This practice, which, as I mentioned, had, had gone on for at least 20 years. That's as far back as I could track it. I couldn't sue for all those on behalf of all those people because the three-year statute of limitations was passed. But it had been going on just about, well, for that long. And uh, it had never, ever been challenged, which I found like by a lawyer. And all these people had court-appointed lawyers because they were all criminal suspects. And I found found that um, really sad and kind of baffling and kind of a reflection that of the fact that sometimes a lot of lawyers just either don't see things or maybe don't care about them or don't have a have an idea that that they can do anything which if they had just contacted a good civil rights lawyer um something could have been done about this a long time ago and there's one other part of the case that was important that i want to mention um out of these six people who were catheterized who uh, who had claims within the statute of limitations on whose behalf i could sue the Police had videotaped three of them. Uh, Gina Alvarez was not one they videotaped, but they videotaped three others. And I, I got these videotapes in Discovery, and I watched them, and um, they were they were really horrible because they really showed how these people uh, screamed. And how much pain they were in as this was being done with them. And I was so lucky the police made those videotapes because without them, it would have just been a swearing contest between the police and my clients. And I, I, you know, I could already hear in my head what the police would say. They'd say, well, yeah, I, he complained, but it didn't really seem to bother him. Or he said it hurt, but. I couldn't see where it was really hurting him. And these these tapes were just awful. My legal assistant, who's highly experienced in many cases, um, she watched one of them once and she refused to ever watch it again and she refused to watch the other two. Um because it was it was just traumatic for her to watch it. So I I always knew those or I always thought those videotapes would help me a lot. And when I finally read the judge's decision, uh, he really talked about what those videotapes showed. And it, it confirmed my belief that, that those would be really 
really helpful evidence. What was your feeling when you read the decision? Well, I was um, I was thrilled. I mean, I felt that I had that I had fulfilled my moral duty to these people and that I had, I had fulfilled my moral duty as a human being. And I was aware that uh, the defense had the option to appeal to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which is not typically a real friendly court toward civil plaintiffs or to drug users or to criminal defendants. Um, but the defense chose not to. They were they they were uh, interested in settling the financial parts of the case, not interested in appealing. And they did. They uh, they settled uh, and they paid the people this had happened to a significant amount of money, not uh, not a huge amount of money. Um, but from the beginning, every time I visited, when I first visited with each client, I said, this case is not going to be about getting a lot of money because if we try it, we're going to try it in this very small town in the center of South Dakota. It's extremely conservative. And I don't, I don't think I can get you a lot of money from this jury, from, from a jury there. But what we can do is we, if we're successful, we can stop this in South Dakota and we can per perhaps, if we're lucky, get a really good written decision that can be used in other parts of the country where this has happened as, as authority, as president, to state that this practice is unconstitutional. And that's, that's how it worked out in the end. That's such amazing and meaningful work that you're doing. Can you share with us, you know, briefly so that all of us can get a sense of, you know, the depth of the great work that you are doing and have done. I know you worked on a case under the 1868 Fort, Fort Laramie Treaty. That's right. Um, would you like to hear a little about that? Please. Well, here's a short version. In 1867 and 1868, the federal government wanted to make uh, peace with a number of Indian tribes, nine Indian tribes altogether. And one of those tribes was the um, Lakota Sioux tribe. Sioux was the, uh, became the American word for the Lakota people. And they're, they're synonymous now, but, but, uh, the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty involved the United States and the, uh, Lakota. And these other tribes all had treaties with the same language. And one thing that the, the treaty said is that if, uh, bad men among the whites, shall commit any wrong against the person or property of uh, the Indians. The United States will uh, cause the offender to be punished and will 
compensate the injured the injured party, namely the injured Indian party. And so that that treaty was sitting there, and um, in uh, in 1970, a lawyer who you may have heard of named Jerry Spence brought a case uh, to enforce that against a uh, 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 or on behalf of a an Indian client who had been shot dead by a uh, Indian law enforcement officer, and um, Jerry was able to get the principle established that that liability could exist under that treaty provision, although he uh, he lost the case itself on the on the facts to a, in a judge trial. That was in that back in 1970. Well, over the years after 1970, there have been just a few cases in which lawyers had brought claims against government employees who had committed alleged wrongs against Native Americans on reservations. But when I looked at the case, I, or when I looked at the treaty provision, it doesn't say anything about it being limited to government employees. It says if bad man among the whites so it could be any bad men among the whites. Well, there was a case where a, a white man uh, got drunk off the reservation, drove onto the reservation, and ran down two Native Americans, killing them both. He was eventually convicted of, of um, vehicular homicide in federal court. But of course, he was judgment proof. So, a lawyer I share office space with um, brought a case in the Court of Federal Claims where these claims have to be brought. And unfortunately, the Court of Federal Claims ruled that um, the treaty provision wasn't that broad and it applied only to. Uh, defendants who were government employees. So the, the fellow my, who shares office space with me brought the case in to me and uh, I've done a lot of appeals and he asked me to look at it and asked me if I do the appeal. And I looked at it and I got excited about the case partly because if we won, we'd establish this principle um, in a treaty that had existed since 1868 and that in the approximately 150 years since then had never been applied in this way. And it, it would give uh, Native Americans, not just on the Pine Ridge Reservation where the Lakota people live among other reservations, but it would give eight other tribes members the same protection under their treaties. So I took the appeal and I, uh, the appeal is to the, uh, Court of Federal Appeals, Court of Federal Appeals in Washington D.C., and uh, won. They agreed with me. They said, "Yeah, that's what the treaty says," and they rejected the government's 
claims that it should be viewed as obsolete or unenforceable for having not been enforced for so long. And one of the great things about the case legally is that these cases can only be brought in the Court of Federal Claims and then only appealed to the uh, Court of Federal Appeals, which means there can never be a conflicting conflicting decision from any other circuit. So there can never be a circuit split. So it's going to be extremely difficult for the government ever to get the case, one of those cases, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the government chose not to seek certiorari in my case. So that right exists now under that treaty. And it was, um, I mean, I'm glad it exists. And I'm also glad that I was able to help enforce a treaty right that had been unenforced for so long because, of course, one of the underlying themes in all relations between Native Americans and um, the U.S. government is to what extent will treaty rights be enforced or ignored? Well, I know you've done other amazing cases, including preserving Bear Butte a very important and historical um, place for Native Americans and an important place in Native American history and an important place where Native Americans practice uh, or pray. And you've also done a lot of work relating to the Vaccine Act and are now working on expanding Medicaid in South Dakota. And it really just such such important work. And I want to take you now to talk a little bit about um, your feeling now that you have uh, become, again, uh, involved with Trilores College. And just we were lucky enough to spend a week together working and growing last week. Um, tell us or share with us how where you are in your journey right now. Uh, my journey with Trilores College or as a person or lawyer or? Um, whatever resonates the most. Okay. Um, well, I'm 69 and I'm in, fortunately, I'm in great health. And fortunately, I have a phenomenal family and a phenomenal wife. And um, I'm going to keep on keeping on for a while anyway. And um, see how I feel as I move into my 70s. But um, doing this kind of stuff just makes me feel good about myself and, and good about my ability to contribute to society. And I, I am not a um, Bible person at all, but there's a passage in the Bible that, that I paraphrase and that I really believe. Uh, and I paraphrase it as uh, from those to whom much is given, much is asked. And I know a tremendous amount was given to me. I mean, I, I was able to have a, have a good education. I was born with, a, with some intelligence. And um, I've got the, uh, the ability to help people who are 
underserved and often disregarded by the powers that be in our society. And that's been, that's just incredibly gratifying to me. And, and I think it was one of the two luckiest things in my life that I, that I came to Western South Dakota and um, was able to find a place here where I could contribute. The other luckiest thing was meeting my wife. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Jim, let me close with a, a brief discussion of emotional connection. Um, you shared with me that, you know, before doing the work we did in the past week, that you were at a place where you were not as as excited about continuing your practice and contributing as such an experienced psychodramatist and trial lawyer and someone who's been a part of trial lawyers college for many, many, many years. Um, do you think there's some element of the emotional connection that we receive when we communicate and feel safe and comfortable with other people that is involved in, in, you know, your enthusiasm now to continue practicing law and, and that has insight onto how we try cases. Well, absolutely. I think um, that a lot of life, in a lot of life, uh, there's not much emotional connection. And there are a lot of people who um, either don't know how to have emotional connection or are afraid of it or think it's uh, dangerous or wrong. But, but nonetheless, even if it's never... Uh, articulated it's there maybe it's maybe it's fear of becoming entangled i mean lawyers when of course when we went to law school we were all taught to think like a lawyer which i think doesn't have anything to do with emotion it has to do with a highly cognitive set of analytical skills well if i'm right that in all our relationships in life, emotion plays an important role, not the only role, but an important role, then it, it makes uh, me rethink, and it has made me rethink how I do everything. It's made me rethink how I, how I um, relate to people. And as I talked about the, um, forced catheterization cases it i hope it came through that it made me rethink how i related to uh the judge even in my in my writing because i think in legal writing which of course is is most of what most of us do in terms of persuasion it's absolutely essential to tap in to the emotional reality in a in a way that allows the other the reader whoever that reader may be or whoever those readers may be if you're if you're writing for a court of appeals to understand what really went on and to understand the emotional factors now i do not mean being 
writing only about emotions or being overly emotional or anything like that. But it's a matter of finding the story and expressing the story that carries the truth of the case. And so that when the judge goes home at night, this is one way to look at it, when the judge goes home at night and talks to her or his spouse or partner about what happened today and the judge tells the spouse or partner about the new uh, case that came in today, what are those two sentences in which the judge describes the case? And if you've reached the judge uh, both emotionally and cognitively, they both have to be there, then the, the way the judge describes the case is going to frame how the judge sees the case. It's going to reflect how the judge sees the case. So in, in all my relationships in life, I'm trying to access what's going on deeper than surface level because it's more meaningful for, meaningful for me. It's a lot more meaningful. And it allows me to have a better chance of um, persuading people when I want to persuade them. Well, Jim, thank you for your amazing work. I mean, you truly are an example of a lawyer that is fighting for other people, fighting to make the world a better place, and fighting against injustice. So thank you on behalf of your clients. Thank you on behalf of the lawyers that you've you've taught and teach. And thank you for uh, personally for sharing your stories with me. And I very much appreciate it. Well, I can't let you, thank you, Scott, but I can't let you go without saying that, uh, again, that I hope I'm worthy of that. And, and I try, I try to live up to those standards, um, as much as I can. So thank you. Thank you.